Hi, and welcome to Voices. This is episode 23. Uh, the show title this week is Occupy Rule of Law. And uh, we're, uh, we're reporting once again on American intervention in Syria. Uh, we've been reporting on American intervention in Syria since 2012. Uh, David, uh, can you go ahead and briefly introduce yourself and our guest, please? Yes, hi, Terry. It's good to be on another show with you, and I'm pretty excited about this one. Uh, this is really uh, the news that's going on at the moment. Sometimes what we do is, you know, kind of after the fact, but this is, uh, we might even have some breaking things while we're talking. And uh, our guest uh, in the show is our good friend, Dr. Edwin Vieira, a preeminent constitutional scholar and uh, attorney, uh, has uh, argued several cases before the United States Supreme Court, I believe four, if I'm not, uh, if I'm correct, Dr. Vieira, and uh, have been successful in three out of four. That's a pretty good batting average, I think. So <laughs> we're glad glad to have you with us. Uh, and, uh, you know, you've got a whole list of accolades that we could probably go through, but mo- most particularly the writings that you've done on two very important areas. One, uh, the money power and uh, the uh, Disabilities and Powers of the Banking System, called uh, um, Pieces of Eight. And then you've got, I've counted four books that you've written on the power of the sword, the well-regulated militia, uh, and our powers as individuals and Americans to try to uh, correct some of the things going on are going to certainly be well uh, benefited by your writing. So we're great, grateful to have you with us and looking forward to a pretty interesting conversation over the next hour. Well, Welcome. I'll help you out as much as I can. <laughs> uh, this is about your third or fourth or fifth time on the show. And again, thank you. Um, I'm sure the show will be very interesting. We're, uh, we're just past two minutes into our hour, and we'll go ahead and kick this off with a quote. Again, this is Rule of Law, Occupy Rule of Law, and it's coming from a quote from Thomas Paine's Common Sense in 1776. In absolute government, the king is law. The law ought to be king. Um, Go ahead, gentlemen. What do we have to say on this issue about Syria? Well, I suppose it depends well, upon upon what uh, perspective you want to take on it. Uh, let me preface anything that I would say that I've written some rather long and detailed articles about this, beginning with what happened back in April of last year, the first Trump missile strike on Syria. Mm-hmm. And they are to be found on a website, edwinviera.com, which is essentially a storage site where I put up most of the short pieces that I write, although these three are not really short. Uh, One is called Aggressive War, and it's a constitutional analysis of that particular attack on Syria, which would be applicable to the one that happened the other day, because Mm -hmm. they both fall into essentially the same uh, parameters of analysis. And then the second article that people might want to look at is called Trump and Treason, which deals with uh, the problems that Mr. Trump may be facing over these attacks. And then I have a third one. It's called Militia and Gun-Free Schools. And although it focuses on gun-free schools, uh, there's a lot of it at the end, which is applicable to what we're talking about now, because it covers some of the areas in which uh, President Trump has potential freedom of action to deal with uh, some of the intricacies of what's happened here. Now, the first problem with these um, missile strikes against Syria is that they run into, uh, internationally at least, uh, the concept of wars of aggression. And the most famous example in international law of recent times of this problem came up at Nuremberg, Nuremberg Tribunal, 1946 where the various uh, German military and several civilian leaders were tried uh, on that basis. That was probably the main charge against them, that they had conspired to and had acted out a a war of aggression in a number of particular fields, on Poland, on 
eventually on the Soviet Union, so forth and so on. And the principle that came out of the Nuremberg Tribunal was that a war of aggression was the supreme international crime, because all other sorts of international crimes would de derive from or devolve from a war of aggression. So that's the basic principle. And uh, some people at the time said, well, that was novel, and it was something that was being applied ex post facto, and actually they deal with that if you read the materials from the Nuremberg Tribunal. And there's an interesting book that's online, a series of books called um, Nazi Conspiracy and Aggression. So people can find all of this documentation on the Internet. And so they specifically, to that. Yeah, they specifically dealt with that question that they were dealing with ex post facto law or some kind of novel application of law. And actually, in American law, that concept goes back to the 1850s, in this case, Fleming versus Page, which specifically says that the power of Congress to declare war does not include the power to declare a war of aggression or a war of conquest. So it's not something that, from the point of view of the United States, was certainly novel because the Supreme Court held it a uh, hundred years earlier. Uh, and we can go into detail about that because there's a lot in the Constitution that focuses on that particular point. But the Nuremberg principle that aggressive war was a supreme war crime was adopted by the United Nations. So it's now part of uh, the United Nations uh, Charter principles and many of the other documents that have legal effect as interpretations or applications of the various treaties that countries have around the world as part of their participation in the United Nations, including, of course, the United States. So if you look at this in principle, say, well, what is a war of aggression? Well, it's a war, look at the other side of that. It's a war that does not derive from or involve self defense. Obviously, if a country has is faced with the danger of an imminent attack by another country, and there's a response to that, that response is not considered, obviously, to be aggression. It's justifiable or potentially excusable, depends upon the exact circumstances. But in any event, it's, it's legal to respond in that manner. So if you look at the Syrian situation, both in 2017 and the more recent one in 2018, you ask, well, uh, what was Syria doing that posed an imminent threat to the United States or to United States uh, personnel or individuals who were over there in the Middle East area legitimately, because one could certainly say that Syria could attack American troops that were illegitimately within Syria's territory, aiding you know, ISIS or whatever they might be doing. But there was never any argument made from the Trump administration that those purported chemical attacks, and I say purported because they've never been proven. The first one wasn't proven, the second one there's a huge amount of controversy over that going on right now. Uh, there was never any evidence that those chemical attacks were directed or affected in any way the United States or citizens of the United States or personnel of the United States. So the question would arise, well, what just possible justification could there be in international law for the United States to launch missile strikes against Syria? I think the short answer is, well, there's none. The United States is not a world policeman. The United States certainly did not have some purported authorization from the UN to do it. Uh, these chemical attacks occurred within Syria, so it's not something that somehow affected a NATO country where there was some treaty obligation or, or treaty authority. Uh, in fact, the, the Chemical attacks were, even according to the Trump administration's theory of them, directed at centers of these um, rebels, the Al-Qaeda, the Al-Nusra, the ISIS, whatever they're calling themselves at various times. Uh, it wasn't directed even at any foreign country. So one would look at that and say, from an international point of view, that certainly should have been something that had would be investigated from the perspective of illegal activity by the UN. They really didn't do that because they couldn't do that because you had opposite sides in the Security Council which were capable of vetoing any UN resolution or any call for UN action on that. So it's still been We've left. It. It's, yeah, it's still been left in a kind of uh, nebulous state. There, the UN was not really capable of doing anything about it because of the nature of the Security Council with vetoes for Russia, vetoes for the United States on the other side. 
uh, if you look at it from the point of view of the law of the United States, there's a statute called the Authorization for the Use of uh, Force that was enacted by Congress pursuant to or after following the 9-11 event and was really directed at those individuals or groups that might have had some complicity in that activity. And that's what led pretty soon to the adventures in Afghanistan that have been going on for 17 years. Because Saddam Hussein, uh, Iraqi government, certainly no one ever claimed that those people were involved in the 9-11 events. In fact, the FBI itself said at the time, to the extent we could trust the FBI, that they couldn't <laughs> attribute they couldn't attribute it even to, um, what's his name, the fellow in the caves in Bora Bora there. Uh, uh, Osama bin Laden. Bin Laden. They couldn't attribute it to him. Uh, so it was some shadowy figures somewhere hiding out in the wilds of <clears throat> Afghanistan. There's been 17 years of war going on there with no result. Uh, but no one ever said that Syria was somehow involved in the bad actors to which the authorization for the use of force was initially directed. And no one has said that Syria has late, more recently been discovered to be part of you know, that dark conspiracy, whoever was involved in it. So this thing doesn't fit the authorization for force resolution in principle. And if you go through it, and in the paper called Aggressive War on my website, I go through essentially every provision of that resolution and show how not one of them even arguably justifies what was done in 2017. And it wouldn't justify what was done this year either by the Trump administration. So he has a problem there with uh, statutory authority. And he has a problem with constitutional authority. Uh, and here we have to go back a step because a lot of people in, in trying to rationalize what the Trump administration has done, I said, well, under Article 2, Section 2 of Clause 1 of the Constitution, the President is Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States, and of course that is true. And they try to derive from that status some extremely broad power to use, direct, send, deploy, whatever word you want, uh, the Army and the Navy of the United States, or the Air Force, because that's one of the armies, if you will, the Marines, that's connected with the Navy, whatever, all these various military assets, to essentially any kind of international adventure that the president may believe or imagine has some relation to something that he calls the national interest. Now, that's very interesting because there is no national interest provision in the Constitution. All right, that's something that's made up. And if you look at the commander-in-chief authority, you'll see that it is very much circumscribed by the authority of Congress. And for this, I have to go back historically to the pre-constitutional law. I remember the colonies, before they became independent, declared their independence in 1776, were parts of the British Empire. And so the English law, specifically, because it was also Scotch law, but the English law specifically, applied to them. And if you look at the commentaries written by Sir William Blackstone, commentaries on the laws of England, written in 1765, and then there was an American edition that came out in 1771, that was probably, in fact, I'd say surely, the most influential legal treatise among Americans. In fact, they say that that book sold probably more copies than any other, hmm. certainly any other legal book in the colonies. And Blackstone goes into great detail about the various powers of Parliament and the King and the judiciary, the judges under English law. And it has four volumes, very detailed book. But he, talking about the King, he points out that the King had two powers that are relevant here. One, he had essentially complete power as the generalissimo, he was in control of the army, he was in control of the navy, he was in control, you could call it the militia, the English militia. He was in control of the forts and so forth. And, 
more importantly, perhaps, he had the exclusive personal power of war and peace. He could declare war, and he could declare peace, end of war. And that was a problem for the English, and they they tried to get around that, uh, practically speaking, when William III came on the throne after the so-called Glorious Revolution, and they tried to tie, because they didn't change that authority, but they tried to tie the king down by controlling the purse strings. So he would really have to go to Parliament and convince members of Parliament that any military adventure overseas was justified, and therefore he would get the money necessary to to fund it. But in any event, in, in 1776, prior to 1776, the king had these two powers, and they were separate powers. He didn't right. have the power to declare war because he was the commander-in-chief. He had the power to declare war because he had that as a separate power. Well, if you look at the Constitution of the United States... Where is the power of war located? It's located in Congress. Congress has the power to declare war, not the president. So they clearly took that power away from the president and gave it to Congress for the simple reason they didn't want that power anymore to be in the hands of a single individual. They wanted Congress to control it. And actually, if you read the Constitution carefully, you'll see that we have a constitutional structure based on legislative supremacy. In the final analysis, Congress really has the power to do pretty much anything it wants within the boundaries of what the Constitution delegates to it. Uh, And the the president has essentially limited powers, Uh, even if you look at something like making treaties. Well, he can go and negotiate treaties with foreign countries, but what happens? They have to be ratified by the Senate, right? He can't even do that. And the king had the power to do that pretty much on his own as well. So the power to declare war was uh, removed from the king, and it was given to Congress. And that was a clear break with English law. Then the king also had the power to regulate the armies and navy to which he was the commander-in-chief. And that power was taken away from him and given to Congress. Congress has the power to provide for regulations of the so-called land and naval forces of the United States. And even the power with respect to the militia was taken away from the king, and that was given to Congress. So Congress has the power to provide for calling forth the militia, organizing army and disciplining the militia, and governing the militia under such rules as Congress may provide. So when we look at the powers of the president as commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy of the United States, and sometimes of the militia of the several states if they're called into the service of the United States, that power as commander-in-chief is really circumscribed by what Congress declares to be the regulations that apply to the Army and Navy, the governance that applies to the militia, and this authority to declare war. And of course, the whole thing is controlled by Congress's ability to control appropriations, because obviously you can't fund armies, navies, or the militia if it was called into the service of the United States, or conduct a war without money, and Congress is in complete control of that. No money can be drawn from the Treasury without appropriations uh, sanctioned by law. That's another constitutional provision. And if you look at the preamble to the Constitution, and most people don't pay attention to the preamble, the preamble really sets out principles of interpretation, very broad principles of interpretation. These goals that the uh, Constitution is supposed to uh, meet, or, or the elements of the Constitution, the Congress and the President, the Judiciary, and so forth, are supposed to satisfy. And of course, one of those goals in the preamble is the common defense. All right? And the important word there is what? Defense. Mm-hmm. All right? Okay? The people of the United States. We, the people, as it says, in order to what? Provide for the common defense, do the following things, whatever else follows. And if you go to Article 1, Section 8, Clause 1, Congress has the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, excises, to pay the debts, and the same language, provide for the common defense of the United States. So this extremely important power of taxing and spending is limited two places. It's limited generally by the preamble, and it's limited specifically by Article 1, Section 8, Clause 1, to the common defense. So one would say, okay, understanding what the word defense means, it would seem that it's impossible to have a war of aggression 
at least in a practical sense, because Congress couldn't tax and spend for it. They couldn't pay for it. Right? No matter where the war of aggression would originate, whether it was the Congress that did it or whether it was the president that attempted to do it, it wouldn't work out as a practical matter because there was no way to fund it. Now, if you go one step further and you say, well, Congress has the power to declare war, can Congress declare a war of aggression? Well, we have to go back to the Declaration of Independence. Declaration of Independence talks about the people delegating to government just powers. Now, that's a very interesting word. Right? They added this word, not just not powers in general, but only just powers. And these were just powers under the laws of nature of nature's God. And of course, the laws of nature, well, that gets you into natural law. And there's a whole history of natural law going back you know, into the Middle Ages, where the concept of the war of aggression was considered to be unjust. Right? Now, they had a lot of hypocrisy, obviously, through that whole period, because you had people doing all sorts of things that uh, fell askance of that principle. Uh, but the principle is not vitiated by the fact that people fail to apply it or fail to conform to it. And that was simply recognized as the basic principle. You could not engage in an unjust, aggressive war. So the Declaration of Independence, of course, is the basis for the entire legal foundation of the states and through the states of the general government in Washington. And so it would follow there that just on that principle alone, Congress could not declare a war of aggression. The Declaration of Independence couldn't have given that unjust power. The people couldn't have given it that unjust power because the people only had the power that the Declaration of Independence said they had. And besides, the preamble in Article 1, Section 8 says, well, they can't possibly engage in that because war can be waged only for the purposes of defense. So it follows from that, well, there's no general power of the president simply to say, well, I don't like what's going on in Syria or Serbia. I mean, think, think of what happened under Clinton or uh, maybe the, what went on in you know, Libya. Uh, want to bring Obama into this. Uh, the president simply has no power. He, he's not a world policeman that can uh, arbitrarily inject American military power into some area of the world because he has some you know, personal fetish or hobby horse, if you will. So the fact that this President Assad of Syria, he can call him all sorts of names, doesn't give President Trump constitutional authority, even if those names were actually applicable to that fellow. Right? Even if he were some kind of a dictator who was oppressing his people within Syria, notwithstanding he's been elected and the entire world considers him to be the legitimate authority in Syria. No one claims that he's a usurper of some kind. He was actually elected. Uh, that wouldn't give Trump any authority here. So where are we? Well, the real problem that he faces, I think, besides the fact that he's now engaged in this and he's created problems with uh, the Russians and maybe down the road with the Chinese as well. Uh, and it's interesting to note that Although the English and the French participated in this latest attack, uh, the Germans backed off. And no other members of NATO came forward, including the Turks, to become involved in it. So there seems to be a real reluctance on the part of uh, a number of these countries that aren't you know, lapdog puppets of Washington, as England is and as France apparently is. They see there's a problem here. All right, so where does this leave Mr. Trump? Well, it leaves him in a very difficult position because he has already committed these two acts of plain aggression under international law, under American law. I don't think, as I say in this, this article that I wrote, it's actually a paper, it's about 50 pages long, called Aggressive War. We'll have uh, a link to that, too. Yeah, I get a link to that. Uh, I, I don't think that there's any defense on the face of it. I don't think there's anything to, that he could point to and say, I was justified in doing this. We're 25 minutes into the show, and again, I think that's that's the crucial point we need to touch on here, is there are an increasing amount of voices saying this is an illegal war, um, true or false. And it sounds if like I you're saying interject, true. Yes, if please. I may interject, um, the... the uh, the thing I think is a salient point here is that 
just before this event happened on Thursday or Friday of last week, uh, General Mattis, who's Secretary of Defense, came out and made the statement that the president had authority to do what he was doing or going to do because of the fact that he, as the commander in chief of the armed forces under the uh, Article 2, Section 2, Clause 1, was in, and as you've already pointed out, Dr. Vera, that that was not not a accurate um, perceptive, uh, perspective, but um, he does have presidential authority that's been given to him by Congress in certain respects, and there's a guy by the name of um, Mar Marty Lederman who's written an article that's pretty interesting, why the strikes against Syria probably violate the UN Charter and therefore the U.S. Constitution. And in there, he goes into some detail about the three schools of thought on presidential authority to use military force without congressional authorization. One is under the traditional view where except for a few small sets of uh, cases where the president doesn't have to go to Congress for approval before acting, he must always obtain ex ante congressional author authorization for any use of military force abroad. Then there's a second school which comes out of a guy, uh, it's called the Bybee U position that Mr. Truman used in Korea when he just saw that there was a national security interest of the United States that justified him going ahead. And even George W. Bush didn't use that. He went to Congress when he was seeking approval to go into Iraq. And so that position is rarely used where you can ju you just can do whatever you want. And then there's a third one they call the third way. He calls the third way, which he says have been practiced for the last few decades, where um, in kind of a middle uh, grand view, whenever it serves significant national interests or cannot, and it's not an extensive use uh, in nature, scope, or duration, a uh, act of war, but just a, a single singular event kind of a thing. The, <laughs> he then concludes this by saying that there is no apparent justification for President Trump not to have asked Congress for authorization to act against Syria in the Shayrat airfield when they attacked and to have held off on the strikes until receiving such authorization. Therefore, this might turn out to be the rare case in which the president simultaneously violated both the constitution and the UN charter as a treaty of the United States. And so I guess I'm putting that all together, Dr. Vieira, to say, you know, what, what are you thinking? Is this guy on the right track? Well, that's what, uh, I, that's, 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 what I've already, that's what I've already said. Yeah, okay. There's no question this is a violation of the UN Charter, and of course, if the UN Charter is, we look at that as, a, as you know, we're bound to that by a treaty, then that treaty is part of the so-called supreme law of the land, Article 6, Clause 2, right? Assuming that that treaty is itself constitutional, which it would be if it, outlaws aggressive war obviously it's constitutional because our our constitution outlaws aggressive war so there's no conflict on that level between the un and our constitution i can imagine some things that the un would do that would be unconstitutional and therefore we wouldn't be bound by the treaty with respect to those things but this isn't one of them all right so got the un and, and that's the obvious one because of course the entire world is looking at this from the point of view of the un as opposed to the United mm -hmm. States Constitution. But I'm not so concerned about the UN. I'm concerned more about the United States Constitution. The UN is you know, just this creature that's been created out here. The United States Constitution is a thing of consequence. And under the United States Constitution, it's clearly invalid, clearly unlawful. And these two other theories that you're talking about, again, they come back to this national interest. If there's a national right. interest. Well, where is that in the Constitution? Where is the national interest exception in the Constitution? to the limitations on the power of the president on the one hand, and to the power of Congress with respect to declaring nothing but a just war. Where is that? I mean, the Fleming versus Page case in 1850 was interesting because it doesn't say, oh, well, this is the way our Constitution works unless there's a national interest exception. All right? Whenever we see people wanting to evade the Constitution, they create one of these exceptions in terms of... Uh, rubrics, words, slogans, where the words don't appear in the Constitution. Yeah, one of, the, one of the ones we hear a lot is national security. Or national, national security, uh, national right. Or national emergency. Emergency, that's another word, right? <laughs> and the national interest is just 
another rubric that they've invented. Well, there is no national interest in violating the Constitution. It's a contradiction in terms. All right? The first question is, is this constitutional? If it's constitutional, they can, if it's not constitutional, there can be no national interest in pursuing that activity. It's as simple as that. We don't say, well, we consider this in the national interest on the basis of some theory that we've invented, and therefore it becomes constitutional. That's completely 180 degrees removed from the correct logic here. The first thing we ask is, if constitutional, if it's not constitutional, it's not in the national interest. If it's constitutional, it still may not be in the national interest as a matter of policy. This is not something we want to do in Syria because it's going to stir up the Russians and the Chinese, and that's not in our national interest to create more animosity there. You see the difference? Mm-hmm. But at the, so you can debate the national interest if you first say that the action is constitutional. But if you say the action is unconstitutional, then it doesn't make any difference what your theory of national interest is. It's unconstitutional. It's not in the national interest. End of discussion. Now, poor Mattis... Well, I assume he's not legally trained. He's a Marine general. He's was our Marine general, right, before he took this position as defense secretary. Uh, so I wouldn't necessarily assume that he has thought this through or perhaps even has the training, the competence, if you will, to think it through. What's interesting to me is that I've seen on a few websites reference to a Department of Justice Office of Legal Counsel memorandum of some kind in which they make the argument that the president's status as commander-in-chief justifies this type of action. But, interestingly enough, they say that this memo is classified. (laughs) All right, now, I always thought that... In a legal case, you're supposed to put the brief before the other party, before the judge. You're not supposed to come to the judge and the other party say, well, I've got this legal brief, and it says that I win, but it's classified. You can't see it. It's all black-lined. Yeah, Yeah, you can't can't see this, (laughs) but you have to accept it as true. All right? Wow. And all I can say is you look at the history of this, there's no possible way, given the complete change between the English law prior to 1776 and the Constitution, 1788, when it was ratified, with respect to the powers of the king relative to the powers of parliament or the powers of the president now relative to the powers of Congress, it is absolutely impossible to say that what Trump thinks he's getting away with or the way he thinks he got away with in 2017 could be justified simply because he's the commander-in-chief. My God, Congress could not have an army. Congress could not have a Navy. Congress could pass regulations from the Army and Navy that would so limit the use of the Army and Navy. Maybe the Army and Navy could only be used within the District of Columbia. And because he's the commander-in-chief, he could just go around that. He has some uh, separate and independent authority over these bodies. Once they create an army, he can do any bloody thing he wants with it. It's an absurdity on the face of it. Now, another thing, too, is uh, granted, you have, you know, Truman... Truman did end up, although he may have acted precipitously, he did end up with the United Nations approving the sending of not only American troops, but troops from the British Commonwealth, Turks were there, Greeks were there, the Philippines had a contingent of people from all over the world to deal with the North Koreans and then to deal with the Chinese communists in, in the Korean conflict. Let's not call it a war because it was never declared. So there you might say, well, there was UN authorization. The UN did consider the North Korean invasion to be an act of aggression. He's outside of the UN charter. And the UN gave color of authority to the United States and other countries sending forces into South Korea. All right. Now, you might argue, you know, constitutional purists would say, well, the U.N. really isn't in a position to uh, cause Congress to declare war. And maybe that's why Congress didn't declare war. Maybe that's why they just left it, as Truman had characterized as a, quote unquote, police action under the authority of the U.N. And that's why you see in many of these pictures, even when General MacArthur was in charge, U.N. flags being flown alongside of the United States flag or the flags of these 
you know, other allies that were involved there. It was even MacArthur was recognizing this as not simply a United States operation, but as a UN operation. So I look at that and I say, well, as a way to to read that as not being, in some sense, a, a bending or a perversion of the United States Constitution, because it was an actual actual treaty, and it looks as if the UN. Um, took action that was consistent, the United States took action that was consistent with the treaty, given what the UN did. And of course, it, why did it happen? It was because the Soviet representative walked out. <laughs> Soviet Union didn't, didn't um, veto it. <clears throat> because I, if you actually look back at it, it's because Stalin wanted the war. Stalin and Mao wanted the war, and the idea was to bleed the West as much as possible for as long as it could be done. So it's all, you know, a lot of complications. But, alright, that one is fine. If you look at more recent events, you'd have to say, well, uh, where is the authorization? I mean, something like Grenada, the attack on Grenada, the invasion of Grenada. Now, I guess they were saying that there were Americans in the medical school there, and so they came in to protect the Americans, but that's another one of these stories. The Americans were not any threat in the medical schools until the bombs started falling and the shots were being taken. Uh, and that's the problem. You have a number of what I would call pseudo-precedents following the Korean event that they now look back on and say, well, this was done by the president, this was done by that president, Serbia with, you know, in the Balkans there with Kosovo and Serbia with Clinton, and then uh, more recently Obama with uh, Libya. And right now, what's going on in Yemen? I mean, we, we we may not have troops there. I don't know whether they have special forces advisors or whatever there, but they're certainly funding and egging on the Saudi Arabians to, you know, decimate Yemen. And they look at these and they say, well, these are all precedents. See, the, the pre well, this president did it, and this president did it, and this president did it. Our Constitution does not work by precedent. The English Constitution worked by precedent. That is, you could have what would have been considered a usurpation, and if it succeeded, it became part of the English Constitution. Hmm. One might very well look at, for instance, the um, uh, de deposition of James II and the insertion of William III, the so-called Glorious Revolution, as an mm -hmm. act of usurpation. Certainly the Jacobites were, the people that supported James certainly looked at it as an act, but it succeeded. And then Parliament passed a couple of statutes to give it color of law, and then it became the Glorious Revolution, right? as mm -hmm. opposed to a series of acts of treason. All right? That's the difference in the English Constitution. And so the English Constitution has been very malleable, very amoeba-like. It changes its shape over time, depending essentially on which political group, special interest group, if you will, succeeds in getting its way and eventually getting control of Parliament. So you have, you know, T Theresa May can say whatever the heck she wants to say as the Prime Minister of England because, well, it's it's such a flexible system that they make it up as they go along. Right? Now, our Constitution doesn't work that way. The mere fact that one president or six presidents got away with something unconstitutional does not change the Constitution. Now we have to put an asterisk after their names in the history books saying, well, they were criminals because they did this or they did this or they did this. They were not heroes. This was a criminal act. All right. Because we always come back to the Constitution as a standard of behavior, not behavior as a standard of the Constitution. So you look at Mr. Trump now, and he's in big trouble because I think only real apologies, only the folks that are called the neocons, the John Boltons of the world, can possibly stand up, and not even with a straight face, and say, well, this is perfectly legal, Article 2, he has the power, commander-in-chief, blah, blah, blah. All right, and that's just talk from them. That's just hot air. Right. But he's got those people over there, and a lot of them. It's interesting how many left wingers, if I may use the term left, uh, especially in the media, are in favor of what was what was done in Syria on these two occasions. People who would have been assumed to be quote unquote anti-war on principle have now become the most vehement, violent almost prop proponents of war. And not Howard just Dean against... was one of those who stood up and said it was the right thing to do, and it was kind of a shock. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. And not, not, not war against some third-rate country, such as Syria, right? but war that might lead to, well, who knows, with the Russians and the, yeah. and, and the Chinese. So very dangerous situation. But looking at Trump personally now, 
in terms of uh, of the danger, he's really put his foot into this because you cannot undo an international crime. You cannot undo aggression. It's already happened, and everybody knows about it. Right? There's really no way to cover this up. And as more and more people are investigating, certainly this latest episode, you know, the last, the, the earlier episode, it was never ever determined that chemical weapons were used there, or if chemical weapons were used or released, chemicals released, that Assad's regime had anything to do with it. That just disappeared. The thing happened, the charges were made, the, 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 the missile strikes were had, and then after that, we didn't pay any more attention to it. Now, this one is getting a great deal more attention, attention in, the, in the media. All sorts of people coming out of the woodwork saying, there's a serious problem with it. And I think there's a serious right. problem. If, if I were President Trump's lawyers, I could not defend him on the basis that he did not commit aggression. That, uh, excuse me, that aggression was not committed. All right? My defense of him would have to be that he was misled hmm. by his advisors, and not simply because his advisors made honest mistakes, but because some of his advisors had a criminal motivation to deceive him because of some scheme that they had, some ulterior motive they had for whatever, destroy the Syrian regime, cause problems with Russia, whatever it would be, and that he was, in a sense, an innocent victim of this. Now, that may be a little bit difficult because, as, as Truman said, the buck stops in the Oval Office. If he's commander-in-chief, you know, he's the officer of the deck in a sense, and he's responsible if the ship runs aground, even if the reason for that was the man at the helm you know, was, was turning in the wrong direction, contrary to orders. He's responsible. So we're looking at a situation where if I were on the side of the people that want to remove him or, or make his presidency really impotent, I would say, well, we've got you exactly where we want you. You've committed these two acts of aggression. The whole world knows it. There's no justification for it. Even Mattis himself said the other day he had no evidence that there had been a chemical attack, but he believed it anyway. Yes. Well, come on. What kind of testimony is that? That would be laughed out of any court, certainly out of any court in the United States. The man gets on the stand and says, well, I have no evidence for this, but I believe it. The judge would say the jury should disregard that testimony. That's incompetent testimony. Amazing, amazing statement. All right. So they don't even have people within the administration that are willing to come out and say, well, his point one, his point two, point three, it's all been verified in one way or another. So here's poor Mr. Trump. He's committed this act, and his only defense, I think, is that he was affirmatively misled. I mean, it's very difficult for the, a person in his position, even someone who isn't as politically inexperienced and naive as he obviously is. He's surrounded by advisors who have been put to him. Someone told him, get Bolton. Someone told him, get Matt. He doesn't know these people. He hasn't worked with them in you know, real estate deals in New York. He doesn't know whether they're competent. And then stuff coming out of the intelligence agencies, stuff coming out of the State Department from nameless, faceless bureaucrats there in the woodwork. Who can trust any of that? We've got about 16 minutes left in the show, and I'd like to review real quickly. We have established it isn't hyperbola that that this is illegal by international law, by constitutional law. And we have established that, okay, so what? Um, We've established that there's excellent reasons for using the mechanisms that are legal. so now we're down to what are we going to do about this? And, and you've touched on mm-hmm. uh, impeachment. Um, there is significant opposition on the record uh, by the Labor Opposition Party in Great Britain, and we'll have a six-page paper, legal paper, which gives their reasons behind that. Um, what are we going to do about if I'm, this? If I may drill down into the question a little deeper, you know, uh, there's a lot of us that are just concerned Americans, you know, regular law-abiding citizens of the country who are looking at this, asking the question, what what can we do? You know, what 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 is there that we can do? Um, and we need a lot of education uh, to know what's what's in our power to do. 
and and I I see this as a question of we're as Americans today we're really stuck. We don't have the mechanisms that we used to have to, as it says, execute the laws of the country anymore. We, we're we're pretty much out here just kind of floundering, trying to figure out what you know. Even if you care that this is a bad thing that's happened, what can the reg, you know normal regular law-abiding American do? That, well, let's, I, let's, you know, can can you address that a little bit? Yeah, well, let's let's look at Mr. Trump's position. This is what I would be concerned about initially, not some long-range change, but the initial problem he has. As I said, you can't undo what's been done, and his defense would have to be that he was misled by people who were intentionally trying to create a problem for him, and so right. now he's now he's caught because. The other side, the, the anti-Trump forces, could always turn on him and say, well, we agree with what's coming out in the international community is, is uh, pretty much as a consensus that this was aggressive war and we think this was an impeachable offense and we're going to start trying to get impeachment proceedings against you. And that can always be a threat in the background, as well as the foreground. And he can be getting, uh, you know, phone calls, private phone calls, saying, well, you better do this or you better do that, or the next thing you know, you're going to be tied up in impeachment proceedings, which will make Watergate look like a picnic. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, they will destroy him, especially if the Democrats gain control of the House or they gain control of the House Judiciary Committee, where impeachment proceedings would be commenced. They will cause the next two, even if they don't succeed, even if they can't get conviction in the Senate or even get it up to the Senate, they'll use the next two years to hammer him with this and make anything else that he wants to do practically impossible because he'll have to spend all of his time and with lawyers and everything else dealing with this impeachment problem. And I think the only way he can get around that, and it also this proposal also strikes at the people who are you know, trying to destroy him, the so-called deep state, because the machinations I'm talking about that caused him to do what he did in Syria are pretty much the emanations from the deep state. These are the people who caused it to happen. He has to turn on them right now. He has to come in front of the American people, uh, you know, 9 o'clock at night, Eastern, Eastern time, and uh, say to the American people, look, here's what happened in Syria here's, in 2017. Here's what happened in 2018. I was deceived. I admit it. I made a mistake. I was politically naive. I didn't realize how viciously criminal these people were who were in one way or another, providing me with this false evidence and egging me on to this. And what I'm going to do now is to clean house. These people are going to be prosecuted. They're going to be convicted. They're going to prison. I don't care who they are, whether in the military-industrial complex, whether in the State Department, whether the intelligence agencies, whether in the FBI, the Department of Justice, I'm going after them because this thing is beyond any kind of acceptability. All right? And that at least would put him in the position where he could say, well, I was you know, deceived by them, and as soon as I realized it, I took the appropriate action. And therefore, House of Representatives, you really don't have a basis against me for impeachment or any other charge that someone might make. And I am willing to accept some kind of censure resolution that I should have been more prudent, that I should have investigated this more carefully, whatever. Right? I'm, willing to, I'm willing even to write that against myself because I now realize that it was my political naivete and lack of real understanding of what went on in the bowels of the you know, government in Washington that caused me to fall into this trap. But I've corrected the situation. And I, think if he did, and I think if he did that, the deplorables, the people who voted for him, would back him 110%. And I think the others, the others on the other side would be completely disarmed. What could they say? The man's admitted okay, a so mistake, that, and he's trying to correct it. So then the next question is, then what? In other words, is there anything we can do further to, to you know, prevent these kinds of nefarious actions from happening in the future where the people themselves are part of the solution, not just the bystanders up in the stands. Is there, you know, no, Ten minutes left. My let, let, me, let me encapsulate Go ahead, that. Tim. How do we prevent World War III? We were looking down the throat of World War III last Friday. If the Russians had responded 
as they said they were going to do, and they have not precluded that they will not respond. They have just, at this point, uh, withheld patiently from responding. What if? I mean, if none of these things work, surely the Constitution didn't leave us uh, with no recourse. We've got 10 minutes left, and the world is wondering what has happened to America. Why can't you stop this? Well, it goes back to the uh, to the thing that I've been working on for several years, which of course is the revitalization of the militia of the several states, its constitutional establishments, which really bring the people into direct uh, operation, if you will, of the political system, much more so than simply being voters or you know, randomly petitioning the government or you know, talking on talk shows or writing articles on the internet. Uh, I think that's one of the main reasons that things have gotten out of hand, especially with the military-industrial complex, developed this huge standing army establishment, which the militia is supposed to be, constitutionally supposed to be, the check and balance against. And once that check and balance was removed, it wasn't unlikely, in fact, it was predictable, that a huge military establishment would be built up as long as the United States had international interest that somebody wanted to. Uh, promote. And of course, that's what Eisenhower said when he left office, right? He made that that farewell address, if you will, saying he had to be wary of the military-industrial complex. It was too bad that he had not been wary of it for the eight years that he was president. Right? He told us when he walked out the door, right? Uh, and I think that's the main problem. Those institutions which the Founding Fathers put into the Constitution specifically to be the counterweight to the possibility of the standing army, and they left a standing army, and Article 1, Section 8 provides Congress the power to raise and support armies. So there, there can be, and there certainly is a standing army. But the militia structures were removed gradually from 1903 on, and that's something that needs to be restored. But that will take a long period of time. It requires, obviously, public education and then legislation. The legislation has to be sequential because you've got to bring people up to speed on this and not really create a um, dislocation, social dislocation, by attempting to put the entire structure into place at one time. But at this particular moment, the thing that has to be emphasized is the deep state is not going to be allowed to get away with this kind of thing ever again. See, Trump is in that position. He can do it. He has the authority to take care of the laws, be faithfully executed. I can give him the list of the laws that need to be executed here. And once he does that... And a number of these people are actually indicted and convicted. The deep state is going to run for cover. The reason that they're going running amok is because they have this neophyte in Washington. They have incompetence like Sessions as the attorney general. I mean, my God, if I were the attorney general, this problem would have been solved a year ago. All right? And they think they can get away with it. And they have been quite successful in getting away with it because there's no, what's the expression, pushback. There's no retaliation coming at them. Right? There's no six defense. minutes. There's no real six defense coming out of the White House. And what if they don't? Uh, can you talk about what the bottom-up solution was that the founding fathers did? The association. Well, the bottom-up quicker The bottom-up solution has got to be a lot of uh, what I would call uh, peaceful resistance to this and one kind or another, and that depends upon how you want to organize people, what you think is effective. But I think it's really the demand the, the demand for the militias structures to be reinstituted, or where I like to use revitalized, because they're actually there in principle in the Constitution. It's not that we have to recreate these things. They're there. They've just been allowed to become moribund. And the, the thing that ties in with that, too, is this gun control hysteria that's now going on in the country. What kind of guns are the gun control fanatics trying to take away from the American people? Well, primarily it's the so-called assault firearms, the AR-15s, the AK-47s, what a whole laundry list of these Chuck Schumer-type, Dianne Feinstein-type statutes will will, uh, give us. And the reason, they are smarter than most Americans. The reason they're going after those guns is not because those guns might be involved in school shootings. It's because those are the quintessential type of firearms that a well-organized, well-regulated militia would actually have. That's that's the next step for them. The first step that was done was essentially making 
the militia moribund. And that started in 1903, and it was finished by the mid-30s and so forth. And now the second step is they realize, well, wait a minute, militias can arise, even constitutional militias can arise, directly out of the people in an extraordinarily bad situation. Extraordinarily quickly. Extraordinarily quickly. Depending, yeah, depends how much pressure is put on the people, they will respond. Yes. So we have to take away from them the best implements that they would use in resisting tyranny. And that's what this gun control hysteria is about. So that's We're one thing that has to be that has to be uh, resisted vehemently. Terry alluded, Terry how, alluded how to this. How fast did the association actually make the bottom-up changes that led to uh, action? And, and David, have you got an answer on that? How yeah, I was just going to say you happen? you alluded to the association, and and in my studies taking. You know, the springboard from your work, Dr. Vieira, research shows that the ability of the people to come together and associate across the 12 of the 13 colonies was literally in a 10-month period of time. We're significantly using uh, tools such as uh, an oath that that the men of the time were were, um, considering in each of their little towns. They came together and and organized, uh, put together committees, safety, correspondence, observation, were able to create the Continental Congress in, in literally just a matter of uh, less than a year in 1774 and 1775. Is that accurate? Well, I think, yeah, as, a, as an overview of it, but you always have to remember that all of those people in all of those colonies had this experience, they were living the experience at the time, of the right. militia structures. Right. Right. They weren't coming together out of nothing. Right. They had this kind of self-governmental understanding that at the base of everything else were these kinds of structures. I mean, it wasn't a bunch of, of uh, what shall I say, it, uh, anarchistic individuals that showed up at Lexington and Concord in 1775. Right. Right. So they heard bells ringing and so they said, well, we have nothing better to do today. Let's pick up our muskets and, and go down to the, you know, the village green in Lexington. This was pursuant to training, organization, and so forth, pursuant to statutes of Massachusetts Bay, which gave the militia specific legal and governmental authority. And they saw themselves. That's what well regulated men. And they saw themselves as resisting the usurpation and tyranny coming out of General Gage. General Gage was the illegitimate, usurpatory actor. These people were not really rebels in their own minds. They were people that were trying to enforce the laws of that colony against this fellow who was attempting to impose martial law on them. Defending. Defending. It was was defensive action and defensive action supported by the laws of their own colony. And the difficulty we have today is most people have lost this understanding that the people themselves in the right institutions really are the ultimate executors of the law. Right? Not just that you so have to go hat in hand to Congress or hat in hand to your state legislature, but in the ultimate analysis, it's the people themselves, where they live, properly organized, who are supposed to have the ultimate governmental authority. Mm-hmm. And that's what we've lost. And that's why we look to somebody like Trump, the, the leader figure, right? the, the, the Fuhrer principle, if I can use the right language for it, right? das Fuhrer Prinzip. That's why this country more and more looks to these leader figures, and when the leader turns out to have feet of clay, well, we don't know what to do. Oh, well, let's hope exactly. we can elect somebody else to fill that role. So in and one me- minute left. Okay. And meanwhile, the entire minute. constitutional structure collapses on our heads. So because the constitutional structure does not depend on the leader. The association yep. We need an educational solution. Before. Absolutely. Exactly. That brings us back around, and this 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 conversation is leading to that education, at least a splinter of what the education needs to be. Well, let's hope. And so. it's important to remember that Lexington, which you just mentioned, was to prevent disarming the colonists. That exactly, and, and and they're trying to disarm the colonists in a sense today in a different manner. Exactly. Well, we've been colonized in a different manner. Yeah, we're co- colonized in a different manner, and now it's going through these various gun, unconstitutional gun control statutes, which are promoted through media hysteria. 
They've, they've discovered something that even General Gage hadn't figured out, that if you control mass media and you propagandize people often enough with lies, they will somehow accept that or at least you know, not resist it. Resist. And, and, and that's the resistance is possible. Resistance is not futile. It wasn't then. One of the three rights. It isn't now. No, that's right. That's right. You have to have some form of resistance. And, of course, at this stage, as I say, there are things that can be done from the top because, because because Trump is caught in the, in this little trap that they've set for him. It's actually – this danger actually provides us with a rare opportunity if he will just understand yes. where he is and what he can do about it. 